Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome back to episode 28 of the Run Culture Podcast. In this week's episode, I actually interview Adam Didick. So Adam Didick is a distinguished running coach from South Australia He's been in the game for a few years now, probably 10 plus years, and coached some amazing athletes and really helped Jess Trengrove's career. Uh, He coaches Jared Talent now, the Cox brothers. uh, Yeah, the list goes on. Uh, Max Stevens. uh, Yeah, he's got a fantastic group now. Matt Clark. um, Yeah, Caitlin Caitlin Adams and the Eccles Eccles sisters. uh, Yeah, fantastic group down there. in Adelaide, and uh, that was one of his aims when he first started was to really establish a good group, the Team Tempo group, and he, he more he overwhelmingly has done that. And I wanted to sort of get into his group and learn about his group and the characters in his group today. Uh, I wanted to also quiz him on his coaching a little bit, and because he certainly does have some fantastic concepts and. And, uh, you know, he was nominated for Coach of the Year in 2015, 16 and 16 and 17 by AFS Australia. He's also been a distance running coach on multiple world champ, com games and Olympic teams So, he, uh, for Athletics Australia. So he's a fantastic coach to listen to. So I reckon all us runners and, and coaches and anyone who's involved in the running scene can learn a lot from this interview. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope you find it useful. And I really, um, once again, need to um, thank Adam for the time that he, he gave me and uh, just the pearls of wisdom that he shared during the interview. Um, but yeah, before I get onto that, uh, I just want to quickly go over how my training's going. So anyone who listens to the podcast frequently, um, you know, knows that I sort of have just started to doing a bit of a weekly segment where I'm documenting my training. Um, my new aim is to do the 50k ultra at the Canberra marathon. Um, and that's, I just did the maths then it's eight and a half weeks ago to go. Um, so I just want to document how I've gone the last couple of weeks because um, I didn't really document anything last week um, in the Rod Griffin interview episode. Uh, so there's nothing really amazing to report and as, as there should be because I'm three and a half weeks after the two bays trail run. So um, I've just been kept, I've just kept plugging away, just ran every day, um, done a lot of jogging at five minutes per K. Uh, the first week after two bays, as I reported, I did an 80K week. Uh, the second week, I did a 100K week. And the th- last week, I did a 120K week. So I've just been slowly ramping up the miles again. And, you know, this week or next week, I should be back pretty close to what I normally do. So normally operate um, at a sustainable level, level of about 150K weeks. And I just know my body can do that routinely, balancing that with my life and work. Um, so I'm almost back up there. 
I've also reintroduced some sessions. Um, there haven't been anything special. And, you know, really, if you, if you look at them on paper, they've been pretty, pretty mediocre. But the whole aim of this sort of four-week window after the marathon was just to really recover. And, and I'm getting pretty close to that now at three and a half weeks. So um, some of the sessions that I've done over the last couple of weeks, uh, well, um, I did sort of mention in, in that week after that I did a couple of sessions with the guys I coached that are about 70-minute 5K runners. So it was great just jumping in with them. And I'd call them sort of medium to half sessions where I just did some 400, so sort of eight 400 reps in about 70, 71 um, off a of static recovery. I did that session again um, uh, last week. I did about 11 400s in about 70 um, yeah, just off that static recovery, I I did one session where I did sort of three by one k in three minutes and and had a good sort of <clears throat> two minute recovery. Um, yeah, that was a nice session just to sort of try to get some um, speed speed back and make sure that um, while I've just been jogging, that I still stay in touch with my Achilles um, with some speed work. I've noticed if I just jog for four weeks, my Achilles just gets so sore when I try to introduce um, some faster running again. So it's just to stay in touch with those gears. And it's not, not a huge session. Like when you look at the mileage of some of those sessions, like 10, 400s, it's only 4K and three by 1K, it's only 3K. Seven by 400s, you know, it's, you know, it's only, you know, only three, three Ks. Um, uh, at two weeks, I was feeling good enough to sign up for the Australia Day Fun Run. Uh, so two weeks after two bays, did that. And the good thing was that I'd done that before. So I did it two years ago after the Hobart Marathon. I signed up for the Australia Day 10K Fun Run from uh, Germana to Rosebud. And my sort of instructions to myself were, yeah, have a bit of an effort, but you know, don't go overboard. And I knew I was capable of running about 3.20 per K. That's just what I felt like I could do at that point. I felt recovered enough to do that. So I was like, okay, don't go into the well. Um, don't go into that sort of, don't go too close to the fire. And yeah, anyway, went out and, you know, started averaging 3.19s and um, was feeling really good and ran with this guy, um, Jason Paisley, who's actually, um, I was chatting to him at the 2K mark and he's like, I'm getting coached by Dave McNeil now, um, you know, gone off the marathon training that I was doing and now focusing on five and 10 Ks and he was moving real well. And, um, I know Jason from previous races and he's a really good racer. He's really gutsy and, um, really just gives it his best shot out there. And, you know, it's always going to be a hard race. So when I was with him at six K and he put in this really hard surge, he just broke me. Um, I didn't have any change of gears. I was sort of just stuck in the one gear, one sort of, um, yeah, just legs were a bit heavy and just 319s was plenty for me and got to the line in 32.47, which I was pretty wrapped about. Um, and yeah, did about 45 seconds better than I did two years ago for the same race um, with the same, you know, two, off two weeks, two weeks off a marathon. So good signs. It's either the trail didn't take as much out of me um, or I'm just getting better at recovering after a, a hard effort like that. So good signs that I was recovering and, and am recovering to be able to go a lot quicker and, and feel a lot better out there uh, for the Australia Day fun run. 
Then uh, I, just recently, over the weekend, I, I did uh, four by a mile in Wilson's Prom. So I was uh, up at Wilson's Prom with Jess's family over the weekend, which was really fun. We got pretty poor weather, a bit of rain, but still able to you know get out for some hikes, enjoy the beach a little bit, and do a lot of board games. So no, a lot of laughs and a lot of fun at, at the prom. Uh, but yeah, that four by mile session went okay. Once again, nothing special on paper. You know, about, about marathon pace average, to be honest. I couldn't go much faster. Um, uh, was just feeling a bit stiff and sore. Um, so it was sort of 3.30s for the first rep, uh, slightly uphill. So probably, um, you know, it was actually a little bit quicker than that. But to be honest, I wasn't that that fast. I just wanted to get the effort done. And then, you know, sort of got the miles down to 3.17 per K um, off a two-minute 30 recovery uh and then just yesterday i got quarters done in fifteen thirty nine, which is eight four hundreds off a 200 float so was sort of averaging 72 seconds did this with um jess dunsmore one of the guys i coach and, and joel mcgill and and then 200 float in 45 seconds um it was a great session but once again like probably breathing a little bit hard early and then sort of worked my way into it achilles a little bit stiff uh so just getting used to used to um going again but yeah ran today and felt felt really good so and did a pretty good gym session um uh, yesterday as well with Jess so have slowly introduced gym again which I think's helping um and I, I think um from now like training will start to get rolling from here like eight and a half weeks to go um sat down and, and planned my training uh a couple of weeks ago um 10 weeks out and I really love that process mapped out um, the 10k kind of pace sessions I want to do and half marathon pace kind of sessions I want to do and some marathon pace sessions I want to do. So the focus will be on a bit more half marathon and 10k pace because I definitely do the marathon work because I know that's in- integral, but I've done a lot of um, um, strong strength stuff in, in my trail running build. So I feel like the strength is is actually um, strength and, and marathon strength and the in endurance is actually there and my strength in my legs is actually there and I think I've um, got a good foundation in terms of that marathon strength I, I reckon I, I need to work on um, I'll, I'll probably um, get a fair bit this prep out of focusing on on some 10k and half marathon sort of work just to make sure my leg speed's there so that I find um, running running at that sub three hour 50k pace um, quite comfortable so a lot of my marathon specific workouts will be paced at a 226 sort of marathon pace effort because that's going to be my goal goal split for the for the marathon and and that that'll um hopefully I can hold on to that pace for the 50k and and then um but you know like like any program if I'm feeling tired then I'll have to adjust that on the day and and it'll, it'll just be the effort that um is um doable on the day and um understanding that training's training and and you get fatigued as you go so whether i hit the splits it's it's not the be all and end all and and that's probably what uh the message i sort of want to deliver um over um the most recent three weeks four weeks like you're not going to do special training after recovering from a 56k race and and so um it's pretty um important to know that there's this underlying fatigue sometime when you're recovering and that your splits will show that and you've just got to go oh well like the main what's the purpose of running at the moment oh it's just to keep the legs going so that they stay strong so that when I do recover um I can like my legs um you know are fit and healthy and conditioned and 
you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to be sore in my Achilles and, um, yeah, um, you know, you keep the ball rolling. Uh, yeah. So, and then, yeah, the, the, I've, I've mapped out, um, this is my last sort of medium week and then, um, I'll have three hard weeks, um, from next week once I'm back from New Zealand, actually, cause I'm going to New Zealand tomorrow, uh, for a good friend of mine, Caden Shields wedding. He's getting married to his fiance, Rach, um, on Friday. So yeah, that'll be an awesome trip, but quick one to Christchurch for four days. Um, so looking forward to that. Um, and then, yeah, smack bang into the hard stuff. Um, so got some really good sessions planned, um, yeah, in my prep. And I'm actually really excited to doing them. Uh, so, yeah, look forward to report on it. Um, but that, that's plenty from me, I reckon. Um, and I'll, I'll be back uh, next week with another interview. Um, I'm hoping to interview Justin Rinaldi, actually. And, um, yeah, I'll uh, debrief you on how my training week went. All right, I hope you enjoy this one with Adam Diddick. See you guys. Welcome back to episode 28 of the Run Culture podcast. Today I'm with Adam Diddick. So Adam Diddick is a highly distinguished Australian distance running coach. Uh, He's been an AA team coach on numerous world championships, Tom Games and Olympic teams. He's the founder of Team Tempo, which is a run group in South Australia. Um, he was nominated for Coach of the Year by AFS Australia in 2015, 16, and 16 and 17. He's got two boys, um, a wife named Kate, um, and he's a personal coach of um, athletes such as Jess Trengrove and Jared Talent and many other great runners. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Adam Diddy. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, so, um... It's a bit humbling when you hear people talk about you, but it's, uh, yeah, I don't know, I just reflect back, it seems like a lot of hard work to do what's, what's happened so far. Yeah, well, um, when you got into coaching, uh, that was roughly when you were about 25, was it? it was, uh, yeah, yeah. At, at 25, it was, um, I kind of fell into it more than anything, uh, basically was was very ambitious myself as a runner, but at that stage, it, it just had come to, to the point where I needed surgery on my Achilles. Sitting out at dinner one night with, with a mate of mine, um, with, with listening to some of his frustrations and about his own running, and I said, well, how about I coach you? And he sort of turned to me, shockingly, and said, yeah, that'd be good. So I went home, wrote three months of training program, and just went for it, and, um, and he ended up being state champion of 1500 that year. And I don't know, I think, I think it's just like anyone when you, when you start to do some things like that, you get a bit of confirmation bias and you think you're, you're the next top coach and you then recognise you've got a lot to learn. So, um, so you know, I obviously had someone there, who Toby Bedlin, who was, who was quite talented and, um, and it didn't seem too difficult to, to get a bit of response out of him. But I, I absolutely loved the process and I loved working with the athlete and I, I was hooked. Um, but I started getting back into running um, not too long after that, obviously, once my Achilles surgery had healed and, and I was trying to persist with my own running. Um, so, yeah, it was it was an interesting sort of, I guess, transformation to coach. But, yeah, I look back now and I always cringe as to what I was like in my approach. Um, not necessarily the training. I, 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 don't, I don't honestly believe that there's so much to revolutionary training approaches. 
I think we all talk about that stuff way too much. Um, yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, I think largely if we sat out and opened up our training logs, which is so much the same, it, it's barely, uh, it, it'd be hard to recognise what are the true differences between some of the training programs. So uh, my, I guess that's my sort of keys. Let's not get too caught up in training. It's just focus on development of the athlete and focusing on what they need to do to, to be better and educating and supporting them to do that. So, yeah, so it, it progressed rather nicely from there. Team Tempo probably started about a year and a half after I coached, um, even though yep. I only had a couple of backwards. We just sort of played around with the idea. And, um, How'd you and, come up with the name? Yeah. How'd you come up with the name? Oh, the name was something that we were, we were just playing around uh, with. I did a lot of studies in group dynamics when I was at university. It was a bit of a, a pet love of mine to read books on group dynamics and team cohesion. Um, and, and really, even at that stage, had this real interest in wanting to be a consultant for, for corporate businesses and sports teams on that. Um, and and there's, there's numerous businesses that do that these days. But um, I guess one of the things that I thought would be important was we were, we were athletes, which wasn't typical in Adelaide at the time, that we were made up of athletes from numerous different co- uh, clubs. Most of what we did was, uh, was sort of took on a club model uh, and developed it, but we wanted to respect the clubs that had their athletes, um, had invested in support and developed those athletes, and we didn't want them just because they came and trained with us to feel like they had to change clubs. And still to this day, we still have that same model. And it was actually Toby Medlin, my first athlete, who said to me, "Well, I don't think it's going to do much for you as a coach if you get everyone out to your group and expect them all to run for the one club because you know most of them have attachments to the clubs that they've run for in the past and." They don't want to change, he said. So if you do that, you might isolate those people who don't want to change clubs. And I said, no, you know what, you're spot on, you're exactly right. So so we, we always avoided being too too fully affiliated with one club. So Team Tempo, the name was basically, uh, I said to the group, hey, let's start come up with a few names and see what comes up. And you know, straight away, things like Team Diddick came up. And I just said, <laughs> there is no way of having my name in the team name. I said... I only play one role in the group. This group is not about me. It's about you guys. So if it's Team Diddick, that seems to suggest that, uh, that you know, it's all about me. So I said, my role is the coach. It is your team, not mine. So, um, you know, that's that's how I sort of squashed that one. And and ultimately, it was just uh, a young man, Axford, who, who, who was uh, a budding graphic uh, designer um, and still, still is only 16 years of age. He just came out one day with all these designs. I didn't even know that was his interest yep. at the time. And um, and he came out with all these logo designs and he sort of played around with names. And and one of them was Team Tempo. We did obviously numerous tempo runs as a young kid. He was learning about the terminology of running. So that sort of stuck to that. And that was, and we all saw that and said, actually, we quite like that. And, and we just went with it. So yeah, yeah it was in one of the young guys in our group sort of um, took the initiative and just came up with a few little designs and logos and names himself. And, and we all said, yeah, we really valued his efforts and the time he put into it. And so we went with that. Well, yeah, it's quite a distinctive logo um, and it's quite recognisable. Um, so that, that probably that really adds to like that whole identity of a team. Um, uh, and, and that's that's what we tried to do. We... we, we uh, we very much enjoyed that factor of uh, working together. Um, I fostered an approach of, hey, if, you know, if you're going to come out every day and add something to this group, you're also going to take something from this group. If you're going to take something, you've got to be giving as well and you've got to be just as proud of 
your teammates results as you are of your own. But no doubt you're going to race and be competitive from time to time, and it's more so now than probably ever was. And you're going to have similar goals when you win state championships or place in nationals or make teams and those sort of things. But at the end of the day, we all say, hey, if you're not the man who gets the job done and, and gets the win or or all uh, on your team. That everyone gets along in that respect and values that to achieve something you've got to work hard. And if someone else achieves what you want to achieve, well, they, they work hard to get there as well. So it's just a healthy level of respect, I would suggest more than anything. Yeah. Um, how many athletes are you coaching now um, under Team Tempo? Uh, team Tempo is probably... Look, it's, it's probably best to, uh, to explain the, the structure of Team Tempo. Yeah. Um, we, have a, we have a junior squad, which is, uh, which is actually run by Toby Medlin, the first athlete I coached. So Toby's our, our junior coach, and that's probably got about uh, 12 to 15 athletes at any one time. Um, I've also got a sprint coach, Andrew Beck, who, who works with Team Tempo. He's, he, he was probably more formally known as our strength and conditioning coach, but these days, um, you know, his, his passion for coaching sprints is really kicked on and um, and he's developing a nice little squad of sprinters. So so that's become a greater focus for him now. Uh, I coach the, the senior distance athletes. I have input with the with the juniors but but not so much. Um, I, I'm more happy for Toby's approach to, to be the developmental approach and for me just to guide and support him and have a bit of oversight over the structure of things. Um, and so the senior group we've got our, our tech tempo elite group which is it ranges between 12 and 15 athletes. And then we've got a senior group that's sort of probably more local uh, runners uh, who, who you know, are, are very valuable to us as well. You know, they add so much to the group. So it's probably about eight in that group. So overall, I think it's, you know, close to 40 athletes within Team Tempo. Yep. Um, you know, like I said, ranging from juniors to seniors to, to elite to sprinters. Uh, and, you know, we were pretty stoked this year that one of our athletes uh, – um, Tom Semler won the Bay Sheffield, so we never thought we'd go to the Bay Sheffield Carnival and win the mile, as, as well as uh, have have an athlete win, win sprint gifts. So that was, that was uh, quite amazing for us to sort of see the evolution of our group extend to that level. Yeah, and um, did, like this is quite big in America, where all these um uh, sort of uh, groups are forming. Like you got the Bowman Track Club, um, Oregon Track Club, and um, you know the hocker, like um, Northern Arizona elite guys. Um, like, do you see this as a direction that um, is probably positive for the sport and um, is probably going to help um, maybe, you know, running um, in Australia? Uh, look, I think, quite honestly, I don't know why we haven't been doing this in the past. You know, there's obviously been models of it in, in respect to, um, you know, Nick Bedeau's group of Melbourne Track Club and how that was based on a, on a business initially and, and the, the amount of opportunities and support that's facilitated for athletes in Australia has been, it's been huge, really. It's kept us on the map. So uh, it, it's all really up to the rest of us to, to go away and look at how we can professionalise what we're doing and make it more feasible and, and, uh, and affordable for people to, to do what they need to do. I mean, essentially, with what I've ever done with gaining sponsorships or whatever have you for our group, it's just really to minimise the barriers between where athletes are and where they want to get to, and if and if we can find some financial support for them to, to go on training camps, for them to go into state and race and the like, for them to have um, equipment so that they they don't need to rely on part-time jobs to, to finance things as great as what they had to previously, then I, I think 
I, I don't know why we're not doing that more. So, I mean, what comes with that is a, is a recognition that you are delving into more of a business approach and not just a high-performance sport approach. It's, that's inevitable. If someone's offering you support in one way, you have to look at how you can offer it back. So, so the marketing opportunities, uh, putting yourself out there a little bit more, making sure that you actively uh, approach things um, in a professional manner. I mean, our, you know, the word social media plan is quite, you know, obvious within our group, and and you know, we're, we're supporting athletes to do that. We support our team to do that. We have people working on graphic design. And, Shaq Reedy, 
and his man Farouk, who, who who's uh, you know very very savvy in this approach and, and pushed me a great deal further than what I thought was possible. And um, and and we you know we, we put ourselves in a position to to um, to go to Essex and say you know is this something that would interest you? Unfortunately, they said yes, and and you know it, it's just about doing that you know on a on a micro level. Um, and being realistic as to what you want to get out of it and, you know, go and have that discussion. It's, it, like I said, it's not easy. You've got to put yourself out there. You've got to be brave enough and intelligent enough in your approach and, um, and then hopefully other, other sponsors will come on board to, to other groups. There's certainly other viable groups in our country that, that, that should be targeting a similar approach um, and, and, it, and it really comes down to being a bit innovative, showing a bit of initiative and, and just, you know, driving towards what you want to get out of the situation and what you can provide as well. Um, and in terms of the sponsorship, is it financial or is it more just apparel and footwear? Um, and do they support just a certain amount of athletes in the group? Or, uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's a, it's a it's a difficult question to answer yeah. for for reasons that are you know from a professional end. But uh, ultimately, you know, our, our athletes get a, get a bit of support to um, you know from us to, to be able to do what they do. We don't. We don't just have ASICs as a sponsor. We sort of have other means to to achieving sponsorship. Um, we have a, a booster program where where we get individual sponsors to come in and support our group. Places not not fair to assume that. Um, and yes, I mean quite obviously there's a number of our athletes who who get uh, product provided to them by ASICs and. And in return, they have got uh, they've got expectations from us in in the way that they that they interact with the community uh, and in the way that they need to go about their preparation and performance, um, and in the way that they uh, um, present themselves in, in things like social media and the likes. So yeah, I I, I can't answer that too much more directly, unfortunately. No, no. Um, but hopefully that gives you enough of an insight into that. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, now I wanted to go a bit. Over um, the athletes that you coach, and and really just wanted to get your insight because um, uh, you're on the ground with them. Like, who are you most excited about um, of the senior athletes that you're coaching for this year? Oh, very challenging question to ask a coach. Um, <laughs> look, I, I think I think undoubtedly it's an Olympic year. So so in answering that question fairly, it's looking at those who have. Uh, the, the capabilities of making an Olympic team. Um, I've been working with Jared Tullant since the start of 2017, and it's been a it's been a, a rough road for him um, with injuries and things like that. And and we're really hoping that he can go to go to Tokyo of Sapporo for him and, uh, and and deliver another sensational result as he's been so accustomed to in the past. And um, as the days are, are getting fewer, the uh, the pressure is is mounting and and um, and, and I think Jared would have, so I'll say, there's still a lot, a lot of work to do to put himself back in that position, but neither of us have lost faith that he's capable of winning that win in, in Sephora. Um, and so, so we do our, our best to, to position himself to do that. I mean, as an update for him, he's, he's going for a qualifying attempt in Japan uh, on the 12th of April. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Jared, Jared takes a lot of risks with his... Um, with his sport and uh, and quite bravely is is probably the, a, a great reason why he's been so successful. Uh, and right now it's the same thing. He's, he's all in for the 50k and it'll be the final 50k at the Olympics this year. Um, and we hope that we can we can get him to the track that he can do that. But 
If not, at least we'll say that uh, that he's done everything he possibly can, um, and uh, recognising that this is a this is this is a really um, pointy end of his career, and um, and 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 that'll you know this is a, a, a big opportunity for him. Um, in regards to the others, we're obviously quite excited about someone like uh, like Max Stevens, who who won nationals last year in steeplechase. And it's only just missed teams um, for the last two years. He, he missed the Commonwealth Games by less than a second and he missed out on the World Champs by less than half a second last year. So he's positioned himself quite nicely coming into the Olympic year on world rankings points. But ultimately, uh, you know, we're really looking for an automatic qualifier for him at some stage. And, and, and to add to that, Matt Clark, who moved over that late to train with Max, who... It was our third ranked Stephen Chaser last year on Times, and, and he, he again is currently ranked as our third Australian world rankings. Got a bit of work to do to put himself in the in the quota position to make Tokyo, um, and and is and is moving very well, and and is quite understandably uh, we're quite excited about some of the uh, uh, you know prospects for him after running 10k PB at Zalapik 28:39. We feel he's got a really good 5k in him this week in Melbourne. Um, and uh, and his steep went beautifully with Max in training, and and you know that, that's really been impressive to see those two work together, recognising they're going for similar goals. Um, you know, and, and when when Matt asked me to coach him, it was was very much with the blessing of of Max to say, yeah, I'm happy for him to come across, and I'm looking forward to working with him. And the two of them are really driving towards this goal uh, together, and recognising they've both got you know obviously individual motivations, but knowing that bringing that together is a real strength having the two of them. And then we've got Jess, obviously, who's, who's given birth uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, towards the end of last year. And, um, uh, you know, she's uh, we've selected a marathon for her now uh, within the qualifying period. And, and we'll do everything we can to put her in shape to, to do that. I mean, the the initial signs has, you know, been really quite positive and she's, she's far more uh, progressed across the line of where we thought she'd be um, at this point. So... Um, you know, it's it's a challenging thing for a for a mum who's breastfeeding and um, and wants him to continue doing that as well and recognising the the health benefits of that and also the challenges that it, that applies to an athlete um, and the the nutritional sort of consistency she requires as well as you know uh, being there appropriately as a mother um, you know uh, applying that time and and adjusting and and that's been a really really challenging sort of uh, transitional period but one that you know just like she has in a in a marathon career is is you know been exemplary in her approach to this and very organized very structured and you know we've now got to, got her she's got us up to the point where she's got babysitters locked in for every morning to allow a bit of training and we've got our times that we've got to make sure we we can hit so that, that to support her to be able to uh, oh, that's that's um Pretty incredible that um, in any circumstance, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, so exciting um, to hear that Jess is still like um, you know trying to make the Olympics um, like because um, I think a lot of a lot of other um, uh, women that would have gone through the same thing would have you probably would have ruled them out, but it's, um, yeah, and there was there was certainly um, we sort of uh, took to this in a very realistic fashion of saying okay. But, if the body's not coming along uh, for the ride and allowing you to do what you do, then we're just not going to do it. And she was quite okay with that. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's still that, that burning desire to go and represent a country. Um, and and if it doesn't happen this year, um, she'll give it a best shot. If it doesn't happen this year, she's still just as excited to represent a country at a world champs or a Commonwealth Games. And, and you know, given, given where she's based in the Commonwealth Games, 
the last two in Glasgow in Gold Coast. There's, there's very much a burning desire to, to, to improve on that in, in Birmingham in 2022. So uh, she's still got a very open mind to what she can achieve in her career. And, and I, I would say we, we haven't seen the best of Jess yet. Um, there's still her better days are ahead of her, not behind her. So um, I'm certainly still just as excited to work with her now as I have been in the past. And probably even more so given the, given the fact of, you know, I, I'm... I very much value a sense of family. I've got two kids myself, um, and I and I recognise the challenges, but also uh, in, in trying to do what I do, and, and the same for Jess. But I also value how how um, how much they add to our lives, and for her to be able to share um, this with her family and, and with her son as as he's growing up is is just you know it's irreplaceable. So uh, I'm really looking forward to supporting her through all of that too. And um, Riley Cox ran a pretty good half marathon over the weekend. Like, were you pretty happy with that? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I said I'd start with some of the Olympians, but someone like Riley Cox is hard not to be excited about a guy who just can consistently deliver when he puts his foot on the start line. Um, he, he's, he's quite an amazing athlete. And, and yeah, he, he has spent a lot of time injured over the years, and that's been a that's been a real challenge for he and I to sort of find that right balance to... to minimise that risk and we've improved that every year we work together but you know we're still still not out of the woodwork um, and, and our, and our hope for, for Riley is that he gets picked in the World Half Marathon team we, we feel like he's, done, he's, put a, he's put a good hand up for selection there and, and you know we have to all just wait and, and, and see what happens there um, but you know ultimately Riley the, the plan's always to take him towards the marathon and um, and you know we don't speak too greatly about people debuting the marathon but picking Riley it's, a, it's fairly obvious he's so he's been destined for that direction. We just need someone who has the physical resilience to get the training done to, to run a really good marathon. But, um, you know, 63.35, he actually left that a little bit disappointed. So it yeah. uh, sort of shows the level that he uh, he applies to himself. And um, and I think that'll, that'll hold him in good stead going into the future. Um, so, you know, it, it, we, we may see him attempt one later this year, but I want to see that some things go in this direction um, for, for, for us to really lock that in. But... That's certainly in the planning. Uh, you know, and, and likewise, I'm, I'm extremely excited about someone like uh, Caitlin Adams, um, who's come along. Um, even, even three years ago, I wouldn't have seen that what she's achieving now is what she was going to do. Uh, and she just continually impresses me. She's getting stronger and stronger. And I think we'll see that this season, that she'll she'll really come along from where she was last year, where she ran a 15, 5K. I think she's got another, another level above her. And, She's going to go overseas and experience some racing and training over there for the first time, which will be exciting for her to, to you know, implement that into a season. Sarah Apple also, I, I feel, has got a big jump ahead of her and um, and can progress her 1500 this year as well. And, and she just has to be patient. Um, you know, she's very much college age. And if, if we sort of can't get the games that we're sort of looking for over the next 12 months, then, then going to college for a couple of years might be a really valid option for her to get the experience that she needs. So we're always open to those options. And, and you know, talking of college, someone like Izzy Bachdor, who's, who's come back from Washington after a, after a bronze medal at NCAAs last year in a 10K, and with a time of 32-20, you know, um, uh, she's, she's really battling back from an injury that she left Washington with. And, we haven't been able to get that right and it hasn't healed the way we wanted to. So we're having to exercise a great deal of patience right now and, and you know, feel for her and for what she's had to go through over the last 12 months. But, uh, you know, there's someone with an amazing attitude and, and once we get this once we get this right, you know, she had a calcaneal um, stress. Um, once we get this right, I, I, nothing's going to stop that, that girl. She's going to uh, 
she's going to go a long way and I don't think we've seen anywhere near her potential just yet we've just probably seen a, a glimpse of what she's capable of so you know a lot of excitement there and, and some of those athletes and you know someone just getting to know their potential their true potential but yeah it's a, I'm, I'm very excited about the athletes I get to coach and and yeah I, I don't lack motivation to work with them that's, that's for sure yeah yeah no you can hear the passion as you as you talk um I, I, I suppose I wanted to also like get your idea who's the biggest character in your group like who, who's um you know every group's got a got a character um got many to be honest. yeah um you know the, the banter that goes around keeps me very entertained i yeah. i uh, i uh, i'd hate to pick a favorite but the one guy that makes me laugh consistently is um is lachlan scott so you know his, his sense of humor <laughs> yeah. he knows he knows how to call it and he knows how to go with it but then I've got, you know, one of his best mates in Riley Cox. You can see why those two are as sharp as anything because <laughs> the, the banter they throw around is, is just, um, it, it, it's quite exceptional. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, when you get the two of them together, there's certainly a bit of a laugh. But even, you know, um, yeah, there's, there's some great personalities in that group. And, you know, when I, when I go away on, on trips with them, I, I miss my family greatly, but it's it's never too hard to deal with that when I've got people that just make it so thoroughly enjoyable around me and um and you know no one's too sensitive and precious and and they're all happy to happy to take a bit of stick and give it and uh and yeah it's yeah as, as long as they're respectful I, I just i just sit back and enjoy watching them interact to be honest with you they're a great great group of people yeah and i think therein lies the importance of a group like um you know like that's what like instead of just doing running you know solo but like there, therein lies the importance of a group like it makes it sort of more like a team and or like that's the beauty about team sport in australia like football and like it's making it more running more like that yeah absolutely and, and to be honest with you you know when you get a lot of like-minded people together the only thing that the only thing that uh, can risk a, a positive environment is a lack of respect you know um and uh, if they respect each other and uh I think there's no reason why why a group can't can't thrive, and yeah, I think I think what people will look back on in their days as an athlete, and I know I do. I look back on in fondness on on the times I spent with my training partners Dan Matner and Tyson Copperstone. The 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 year that the three of us trained together was a highlight for me, um, and and I look back and they were my memories. Travelling with them, training with them. You know the jokes we that, that we used to have, the, the moments that we used to just have us literally, you know, going like jelly halfway through the last rep because something happened that we just pissed ourselves laughing with. <laughs> They're the things that come to mind when I remember my running. Yeah, certainly the odd win here. I didn't have many of them. <laughs> running, I suppose juniors. What do they enjoy most about running? It's going on a team. It's you know traveling to a meet. Um, and just just hanging out with other athletes, um, and and people ask you all the time, how do you just run? Well, I, I don't see it's boring. I, I see that it's you know entertaining. It's, uh, it's something you look forward to. Um, and and any, anyone who anyone who asks me, oh, you know, why do you run it so hard? It's because I just haven't found the right environment to do it. Um, and I even you know we, we have a recreational business called Tempo Run Coach. You know, you probably get the thing that all of these things are linked together yeah. um, in a business sense, but tempo run coach i see recreational runners who who join together and say we're going to go to new york marathon this year and they get together and their banter and their humor yeah. and their sense of enjoyment out of training it's the same as what 
what the elite athletes have, and then they enjoy that that reward of going to that race that they've all targeted. They enjoy the the challenges. They enjoy going through the tough times and the good times together, um, and and banding together to, to to make it an enjoyable experience. And they're training six o'clock in the morning. And I tell you, some of these some of these runners are, are waking up after having their kids waking them up all throughout the night. They rock up, and you can see that they've had a tough night, and you know a, a, a bit of banter and a, and a, and a bit of a uh, bit of a laugh and. It makes that six o'clock training session so much more enjoyable, and they start their day energized and ready to go. And that's that's really what I, I, I love seeing that as well. No, no, spot on. Um, and then in the group, who's? I mean, they're all dedicated, but who would you say is the most dedicated in your group? I'll probably reshape that question in yeah. who I could get the most out of themselves. Yep. And at this stage, it's hard to go past Max Stevens. Yep. And and. It's not that he tries harder than anyone else. It's that he has a really good level of self-control to understand what he needs to do um, and what he what he needs to avoid. Um, he, he's quite smart, intelligent decisions as to when to pull back on a run or intensity, when to pull back on a run because he's got a bit of a niggle or he's fatigued, when to call me up and say, hey, I'm pretty knackered at the moment and for us to be able to agree on the fact that, okay, you're just going to take a day off tomorrow. If you're not the question, say, yeah, good man. Just going to take a day off. Rather than, you know, be one of those um, distance runners who get so obsessive that they go, oh, I can't take that day off. I've just got to go out and run or I've got to swim or I've got a bike ride or I've got to go for a three-hour hike or, you know, whatever obsessive sort of element that we have. And, and you know, my runners listening to that will probably picture one or two people, three or four or five people who have done that. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, you know, the, the, you know, that's probably why I say Max gets the most out of him. And, and if you ask me when I took on a runner, did I think that he was going to get anywhere near what he did, uh, what, what he's doing right now? And the answer would outright be no. And everyone in the group would say exactly the same. I mean, he's been quite impressive in the way he's approached things. And it didn't it didn't show itself in the in the early stages, but it just kept on developing. And all of a sudden, his his mindset and his ability to be able to he's got such a flexible mind that he can adapt to situations, accept situations, and get on with it. And that's that's what I think is his X factor. And every athlete has an X factor. Yeah. And um, and that's that's something that you know we see with that. Yeah, like I've heard you in, in previous podcasts um, uh, say something like, um, I've got to work out the athlete, like what kind of beast they are. Um, yeah. Is that what you mean by that? Like everyone's got a, got a, uh, I suppose, an X factor or something that makes them tick or, or, or some, some strength? Yeah, I mean, that comment about what type of beast you are is definitely something that I was influenced by Sean Crichton when he coached me. He took on myself and Dan Matner at the time and talked about us training together. He said, look, I've got to work out what kind of beast you are um, before I can work out that you're going to be able to train all the time together or just a little bit together. Um, and that was basically looking at, okay, do you respond more to the short up higher intensity work or do you respond more to the longer volume sort of work? What do you respond to? So it, with, with that comment, I'd probably say I refer more to the physical um, yeah. adaption of an athlete as to what what they what suits their attributes best. But I'd probably say as a coach now, I've evolved my, my thoughts to, yeah, you're asking the question at a pertinent time where I'm looking at the personality of the athlete, I'm looking at what are the attributes of them, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I guess, is 
you know, if you want to round off the four key key pillars um, and, and look at how I sort of interact with them as to, to what their values are and how they align within those areas. Because, you know, if I, if I fail to recognise that someone's a very emotional being and just try to be a hard-ass on them and fail to recognise that that's not actually going to tune in with them, then that's a different story. If I know that someone's quite quite malleable in, in regards to the emotional side and I can be quite tough on them, then, you know, I, I can my approach to them is going to be different. So every one of my athletes, I try to really factor in how I approach them. And this is where I get away from the idea of writing a training program that suits an athlete. Yes, that's necessary, but it's also the coaching approach that suits the, the athletes. If I... Um, if I approach all of them in the same way or expect them all to respond the same way, it's just, it's just unrealistic and it's naive. We've got a number of different individuals out there and I'm not trying to change or, 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 or force them to, to create a, to, to fit into a certain mould. I'm trying to work out you know, what are their triggers, what's going to work for them um, and understand them. And so getting to know my place is, is crucial for me. And the majority of my work as a coach is not done out on the training track. It's not done. It used to, I used to say the majority of my, my work is done on the uh, behind the computer screen when I'm writing a program. But nowadays I'd say that the most valuable work I do is the coffee shop or on the phone. Yep. Um, you know, and and I and I really hold true to that because I could give all my athletes exactly the same training um, and they're all going to respond slightly differently. And that could be down to what type of beast they are, but it also could be down the fact that one's got uh, uh, a relationship that's just broken down and I've failed to recognise and acknowledge that in the way that we approach it. And, and I always talk about you need to invest in different areas of your life to, to achieve, you know, peak performance. And, um, you know, I'll bring up those words before that, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And I, and I sometimes, I've, I've done it recently where I've asked athletes, I've, I've drawn these four circles, interlocked them, and I said that little bit in the middle, that's peak performance. So, so think about how difficult it is to achieve it and where you need to invest your time and effort. Um, and and that, if that means that, so I get them to sort of sit down with those circles, write down the things that are pulling those circles away from each other and write about what are the things that are pushing them together. Um, and then, you know, if someone says, oh, look, I'm, I, uh, I'm really struggling, I'm at home, my partner's not accepting the amount of time I need to spend training, um, and the fact that it interferes with, uh, with my time with my kids, um, I'll say, okay, well, look, when can you train? And, and allow them to have that bit of flexibility to train separate to the group um, and recognise and, and, and work with that. Or I can only train twice a week because I've got these other pressures on me. Okay, well, then you have to sort of find other ways of doing it. But it's just about working with the athlete, not against them. And I find if we say, all right, you must be at training, Tuesday, Thursday nights, you've got to be out there Saturday morning, it's Sunday morning, you've got to train the group. But this is very much what I was like when I started coaching. I pretty much had a time that I expected everyone to commit to for every single day of the week. And I started getting up there saying, you know what, my boyfriend would like me to go out and, um, and go for breakfast or a brunch once every month on a Sunday. Can I just do my run on my own? And initially my answer was, no, you definitely get out there and do the training. Where's your commitment? Yeah. And nowadays I'm like, hey, look, I, I, I get that. Go and do it. If you need to do it, just make sure you get the training done um, or we'll adjust this here and there so you can do it that way um, and, and I'll work with them. It, it takes a little bit more working around programming stuff after that result you get scratching this thing and listening to them and showing you give a crap um, uh, about the rest of the life and not just saying exactly. It makes a huge, makes a huge difference. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've certainly... Um, 
witnessed um, that uh, firsthand. Um, so, like, I've done a bit of physio with um, a local athlete and friend, Gemma Maney, um, who's coached by you, and um, she was going through a bit of injury trouble late last year, and uh, she was down in the dumps about it and not sure what to do, and then, um, uh, like, I was amazed at how involved you were and how much you collaborated with the process. So, like, you, we, we had a chat on the phone, and then um, you also chatted to Paul Blackman, um, uh, and, and um, I've also had like a couple of other sort of experiences, like one experience um, with Jess Trengrove when I was over there um, doing the physio for a running camp um, in Flagstaff and um, she was um, struggling with her foot at the time and uh, yeah, you were like, and even just um, communicating with Jess, like you were very, very much involved in the process and um uh, and then also um, I'm, I'm good friends with Nikki Frey and, and she, she chatted to me and, and, and many a time and how much you loved how, how much you asked questions and how involved you were with, um, I don't know, progressing yourself as a coach but also um, asking questions. And, and I think it's like it's, it's that different part of coaching. It's not setting the training program and, you know, this is the session you have to do. It's, that, it's the, the interpersonal skills. Um, so yeah, like, I, I do pride myself on it. I'll be, you know, and I, I say that to athletes, you know, and, and to be honest with you, I don't always get it right. So, so I'm no, no guru on it all the time. But I, and 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 sometimes the hardest part for me is actually developing the relationship with the athletes so they feel comfortable with me in those things. I mean, I can be a bit gruff and and whatever to begin with, and 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 seem a little bit cold um, because I, you know, I, don't, I have to sort of tell. Uh, hold a bit of a line in discipline out in training as well. But it's only when those athletes sort of have that first experience where they where they require some support that they then sort of understand their strengths. And that, that's okay. I mean, I, I, I was the same as a school teacher. Most of the kids, uh, unless they had to, they, they probably would have thought I was the strictest guy uh, as, a, as a school teacher. But it was the moments where they needed help that they and, and when they saw those sorts of things. So, um, I don't know, maybe that's a protection mechanism, but... I think at the end of the day, you talk about those interactions with the coach and the practitioners, and that's really important. I, I just, I cannot accept a coach that can't call a physio, have a conversation, call a doctor, understand what's going on, um, and not be in, you know, and, and not have that interaction. That to me is just, it's crazy to think that that doesn't happen. Um, and unfortunately, it does. And you, you as a practitioner know that. My encouragement to coaches are you, you need to be as well informed as what you can. I go to the physio with my athletes or the doctor with my athletes when, when there's a need, when we're at a point where, where we need some answers. Um, best. I also believe that the practitioners don't have the full picture to consider. So when I have a physio say, look, you've just got to rest, and, uh, and they're not recognising that this athlete had a goal for this or that their, their emotional well-being is attached to some of their, their activity um, and exercise. And so, and I've seen it before, athletes have been told to rest and, and then see the depression just settle in with athletes um, because their coping mechanism towards some of their anxiety and depression has been removed. And, and I look at it and go, well, can we at least modify it to then accommodate and then it's really important to understand the reloading process. Um, if, a, if a coach is not communicating, then what are you? Why not? 
why not? If, if, if you think a practitioner knows more about your athletes, then I think you're kidding yourself. Yes, a practitioner definitely knows more about the injury and the coach is there to be supported by the practitioner in designing and reloading. Um, and, 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 I, and I get told by practitioners all the time, they say, yes, Adam, you might want to do that, but a lot of coaches don't. So we end up having to write the reloading process for them. We'd prefer the coach to take it on as well. Um, so I, I'd rather I'd rather know what are the uh, what are the do's and don'ts when coming back. Okay, can they manage running longer but slower, or do they have to, or do they have to, uh, or, or are they because they're mechanically more efficient running at pace? That's going to be better. But once fatigue sets in, the injury might might stir up again. So so you know you just have to get creative in your approach. You also need to understand what what cross training is actually appropriate for some injuries. Riding a bike is not appropriate cross training. Going swimming is not appropriate for cross training. Getting on an elliptical trainer is not appropriate. So uh, you know, understanding those things and be able to create you know a balance around that is really important. Just to pick up your athletes when they're healed and better and back to and reloading in their training is I don't believe is acceptable for a coach to leave the athlete in that position. Yeah, no, no, so so true. Um, I also um, I, I listened into a few of um, the YouTube videos you did with Steve Magnus um, uh, coaching with Kraft, and um, one of them was um, how are you getting better as a coach, and 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 you also talked about this um, on the Brad Beer podcast um, about um, monitor, monitoring like daily um, sort of metrics and and load management and. Uh, I really liked um, how you um, monitored load and, uh, and and how you mentioned that you you monitor things more than just mileage. Um, so uh, like um, if someone's feeling uh, sore or they're um, feeling sick, um, uh, you monitor that. And, and you even had some numeric numerical uh, uh, sort of objective uh, recording system. Like, do you mind going yeah. through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I started a lot of the monitoring of low What the week you did was, was I mean, 100 k's a week, if you just go out and do easy running, is a very different stimulus to 100 k's a week when you've got two or three um, sessions in there, you know, with, with a threshold run being one of those, being something anaerobic at some point, and then, you know, hill reps. I mean, that, those, those two weeks are completely different. Um, so, so it's an arbitrary measure talking about the amount of k's you run a week, and I literally throw that idea out the window these days. I don't even consider it, and I wouldn't even know exactly how many k's a week their athletes are running. It's generally a number at the end of their week uh, on their training program, but they, they know what context that has um, to them. Um, so, so we we don't we don't worry or stress too much about it. Um, I, I guess. I guess it came about a lot when I was trying to work with Jess in the lead up to um, to the Glasgow Commonwealth Games, and then again Rio, where she had a foot injury both times, and it was very hard for her at the time. Obviously, it was quite an emotional time, you know, seeing something that she'd been driving to for such a long time being so greatly impacted by an injury that she couldn't overcome, uh, and then know that she had her, her normal marathon preparation period. So. I had to start helping her to understand that the cross training she was doing was actually training. It was actually conditioning towards a marathon. Um, it wasn't just being done for the sake of it. And so we started measuring 
um, he's like, okay, for every five minutes on the bike, we'll call that one kilometre of running. And uh, because he liked to sort of look at the kilometres at the end of the week uh, back at the back in those days. And so we, we tried to do it. So, you know, she was jumping on the rower the most and because she had one at her house because her sister used to be a rower and, and I felt that was a less specific cross-training for her, so I was trying to discourage it. So I said, all right, spend every eight minutes on the rower. We'll call that one. Just <laughs> discourage it. We, we know the effort on the rower is far more significant than that, but it probably wasn't specific enough for what I wanted her to be doing. So yeah. the cardio level was great, but... Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it was harder to, to achieve the, the running condition I needed her to do. And, and so then, then you know, uh, I actually got largely influenced more than any other influence I've had in my coaching probably by Ben Ray Smith when I met with him in Rio, uh, well, prior to Rio, sorry, at our holding camp in, in Florida at IMG. And, and I talked to him a little bit about it and I, and I pulled out my spreadsheets where I was I was creating, you know, loading sort of graphs and all the rest of it, telling how I got there. He's like, mm, listen to me the whole time. He's like, right. And then he started talking and I just was just tuned in and could not could not stop listening and was, I reckon it was two hours he spoke for and I was just hanging on every word and I loved it because everything that I was trying to achieve, he was already achieving in what he had set up and he had done it through a lot of research and evidence. So it really reinforced the sense for me, which is great, but it also it also supported me by helping me to understand some of the research and my things and the way that worked. So he gave me a few more parameters to consider. Um, and, and so from that point on, Ben and I worked a lot together and on uh, durational and, um, and distance load, external, internal load, if you want to call it that. Um, and the relationship I had for conditioning, but also sort of how it interacted for males and female athletes, how, um, how uh, you know, we, we acknowledge six-week averages going into it to, to adequately understand what appropriate load was for that week. And it sort of gave load references that were different to um, different to, to volume just on its own. And, and, and it wasn't overly complex. I mean, we were collecting the amount of cross-training, and then we asked him to give an RPE for, for every single session to rate it out of 10. Obviously, with the running, we also applied a, a, a distance load to it. So for a distance load, it was basically, you know, the, the volume, uh, the distance uh, multiplied by their RPE, a duration was time multiplied by RPE. Now, we saw a lot of um, tracking that showed us how someone's condition was able to be maintained uh, through periods when they were injured and then how quickly they could return to training. But it also showed us as to how much if their um, if their training load dropped, how long it would take us to get it back adequately, where we could take certain risks to maybe um, accelerate that, that load progression, where we needed to be a little bit more patient. Um, and that was great. It even started to help us to understand or, you know, unfortunately predict sometimes illness or injury. Um, and that was obviously the whole purpose of this from, from Ben's perspective, being a physiotherapist, to minimise injury and illness. So now, we, now we're factoring in well-being considerations. We're looking at sleep and its relationship with, um, with the load and how, how, they, uh, how they can handle certain training loads. I mean, because at the end of the day, we'll sit down as coaches and we'll write a training program, but we won't recognise the, the variables that might uh, be, uh, be something that athletes need to manage. I mean, if I write a training week, I'm writing that and everything's managed nicely. But if they have a long day at work where they're standing on their feet or, uh, or you know, they go home and the dog next door is barking all night and they didn't get to sleep well enough, 
or they've got a stressful period through exams or, or their dog died or a partner uh, broke up with them or they're moving house. I, I, can't, I can't foresee those things happening, but I can have them understand that how it's impacting their trading. And lo and behold, when you see those stresses occur, you see RPEs creep up to higher than what you expected. Or let's just say one day they decided they're going to push themselves a lot harder than what you intended. And where you might have predicted an RPE of five, they've now hit it at a seven or eight, and that's now starting to impact down the line for their recovery for the next session. So, you know, I I sort of brought back a, a bit of an idea, and I use this with my athletes. I used to use my athletes a fair bit, but I kind of talked to them as a, a concept of availability of trade on any given day. Um, and, and certainly I don't get to go out to every single athlete's training session. I have athletes in state and I never get to see trainers. They come to Adelaide or I go to see them. Um, I have athletes who are training overseas, so we need to come up with an understanding of how to make a decision without me there. So we started uh, many years ago before I did most of this monitoring. I was just trying to collect some numbers to see what value it had to me. And I'd go around with a clipboard and collect four numbers out of training. And I've spoken about this openly before. I said, you know, I want a rating out of five for your health, for your fatigue, soreness and stress. And, um, and I said five being, you know, crap, uh, one being good. Everything's, everything's great, no problems. Um, and, and what I'd basically say to them is if you had all those four numbers together, obviously a maximum of 20. So if your numbers add up and they're less than 10, we go along, do what's programmed, no change required. If it's between 10 and 15, then we modify that session. Um, to cope, or we'll generally have a discussion about it. If I just modify it automatically off of that all the time, then you might find some of the athletes might manipulate their numbers to keep it under 10 because athletes don't necessarily like modifications to their training. Uh, but if, it, if it's above 15, if it's between 15 and 20, I'll just send them home. Yeah. Send them home. And if it's high stress, I'll say, go home, have a glass of wine, just relax. Yeah. You know, <laughs> go, go for a walk along the beach, um, you know, dip your feet in the water, you know, just do something that. That can that can minimise that. So like I said to you before, there's those there's those four circles from a sports psych model of yep. you know mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And sometimes you need to invest in those other areas. And it's not always physical. You know, taking a day off here or there to go and invest in yourself emotionally or mentally, just to, to allow you to be more accessible and available for training, is uh, I think so important. But we always get too obsessed with chasing the Ks and, and doing, the, doing the training as if that's what makes all the difference. Well, it does. You can't get away without doing it. But, you know, if you're giving up one day a month, oh, come on, let's, let's, let's not kid ourselves. And I, I remember um, with some coaches I was working with from another sport. I can't remember if it was, um, I, I think from memory it was Rick Charles, with the, the you know, well-renowned hockey coach, um, used, to, used to give out, uh, out some illness like get out of jail free cards and had like you know a few of these a year that you could get out of jail free so you could not rock up to training uh, because you want to take your girlfriend out on a date that night um, and, uh, and and use that card and and, uh, and and I think you know sometimes it's just about a healthy perspective on on how it all how all your systems interact you know but I you know I've certainly seen athletes who when things aren't going right in their life all of a sudden you see injuries occur. You see them rocking up to training with a bad attitude, which ultimately impacts the group. Yep. And they're rocking up this level of tension that just doesn't need to be there. Yep. Um, and they're not training well and they're getting frustrated with their training. And, and the spin-off effect of that is just, you know, it's counterproductive to, to what you're trying to achieve. So, like I said, I think you've just got to be a little bit more understanding of all the systems interacting rather than just being fully linear and just looking at the physical all the time. And 
thinking the mental is just about, oh, you've got to be tough and you've got to be able to accept pain and, you know, get through the hard sessions and all the rest of it. I mean, ultimately, they're only going to be available to do that if they're healthy, you know, and that's that's in all in all areas of their life. Uh, I love that holistic approach. Um, so does that mean you're against Strava? Like you're not the biggest fan of Strava? <laughs> uh, I have to be careful here because I've written articles for Strava and my husband in the Senate. Um, <laughs> no, not really. No, I, I'm not. I'm not against Strava at, at all. I think it's. I think it's context and purpose that needs to be applied to it. Um, I'm not protective of the training I give out, um, and uh, and so so a lot of a lot of people will see that my athletes don't go live on Strava. They the, most of them have Strava, but they keep it very much within their friends, um, and they don't make it public. And I sort of that's that's through my request of anyone to point the finger at them being a bit precious. It's me, um, and I'm happy to accept that. But I I don't actually see from a, with the recreational runners that that we coach now, temporary uh, coach. I don't mind at all if people get on Strava and can be as public as they like, but with competitive athletes, I think there's an element that you want to rock up at the start line and everyone knowing what you've done, how well uh, you've been going in training or how poorly you're going in training, they get, they get out there and they know what to expect. I'd rather leave them guessing. I'd rather have athletes in a competitive sense have uh, the athletes on the start line because you as a competitive runner too would know uh, Telling how others are going. So yeah, I can see how the benefit of freaking everyone out because you've just done some amazing training can can play out in your favour. But I can also see how counterproductive it can be when they see that you haven't been posting or you have had injuries or you've had to pull out of sessions, and that's all there for everyone to see. Um, I also I also have a little bit of an issue with competitive athletes needing to get kudos on their training sessions. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, we, we once had athletes, you know, public on Strava and, you know, I got asked, it was Max Stevens actually, just to embarrass him. I said, <laughs> oh, when are you going to give me kudos in one of your sessions? I said, kudos for your session. I don't give a crap about giving you kudos in the session. I'll give you kudos when you race well. Yeah. You know, you just make sure you get the training done appropriately. You know, I don't need you to set world records in training. I want to see it all out in race day. And then, and then I just see too much of an attachment with, with people who, who are, I think we can recognise a lot of endurance athletes are fairly obsessive in nature, getting home, posting their training session and waiting and checking all the kudos they get. And it inevitably happens, it happens on Facebook, see how many likes they get and all the rest of it. I just don't see that that's a healthy um, healthy attitude to have, you know, and, and I think when we talk about the, the, those four pillars that I'm looking for from, uh, from a healthy athlete, um, I think it starts to impact that more than anything. And, and I was dealing with those issues. So I just said, right, guys, bang, you can have Strava, you can add your, you can add your friends and your training partners, but you don't. I don't think you need it public. And, yeah, the first question I got was, well, it's our training, it's not your IP. And I said, it's got nothing to do with my IP, here's my rationale. And uh, when I provided that rationale to the athletes, they, they accepted it. And, um, you know, some of them really like it. Um, so I, I, but. Yeah, that's sort of accepted. That's part of being part of our group. That's that's a, a, a parameter for it. And look, if anyone wants to know what we're doing, they can just ask. But I'm also yeah. very conscious of of people making judgments on uh, probably the training the athletes do, uh, the type of training that I give out as a coach, without understanding the context or the reasons why. And that's why I really don't give two hoots about what other people do. I don't. I know that I could go and look at a lot of athletes and what they do in training or Strava. I, I never do. I, I, I don't care 
because I'm not interested in what other people do. If I'm going to learn something from what people are doing, I'm more interested in why they're doing it. And if I'm going to have that conversation, have that with their coach and add a respect to, um, to, to sort of ask them the questions, hey, I saw this session. Semi podcast with people talking about training, but without providing the context, and everyone's going to get their training matches, massive 30k tempo runs for marathon preps and all the rest of it. I'm going, no, okay, but not everyone can do it, not everyone can, can get there. And I've had in my rep runners people say, Oh, you need to do at least four 35k runs before you run a marathon. I say, Great, give me more than three months, and I'll get you to 35ks. Yeah. But if you, if, you, if you come to me. In uh, in June, before you're running um, you're running uh, New York Marathon, and you're just stepping off the couch to run, I'll progress you to what I hopefully can progress you to, and you're just going to have to leave it all out in the day and, and manage the best you can. Um, so so I think there's always context that needs to be applied, and I, I'm quite conscious of that as a coach. I don't want to be misrepresented um, as my training model because it's not one session. We go out to training and there's five different sessions happening, not just the one. Yeah. Um, and there's rationale and reasons for, for every one of those sessions. So yeah. um, to be able to apply that fairly um, without judgment, I think, is, is, is what we all need to apply to each other. What, like, um, you've really illustrated really well that there's so much more than the training session that you give um, when you're training someone. Um, but if you were to pick out three to four sort of regular sessions that you are some of your favourites in terms of getting someone fit. Um, you know, what are some of your favourites? Like, and they don't have to be special or anything because training doesn't have to be special. But well, The one I enjoy watching as a coach the most is, yeah. uh, is what, you know, a lot of people do is just pick up run. And, and we, have a, uh, we have a great 2.2k loop. We're um, on dirt path here in Adelaide. Um, uh, called the Uni Loop, and it's uh, it's got 200 meter markers all the way around the track, and it's 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 pretty much spot on to the meter accurate. And so what we do is we do a pick up run, and different people have different distances that they need to uh, achieve. But the goal is you have a starting pace, and then you need to increase every kilometer by five seconds until you can't. And the rule generally is if you can't pick it up by five seconds, you don't start it. Um, and I'll generally have like six to eight kilometres, I'll say, for, for people. So if it's eight kilometres and they can't pick up after six, then they'll come back and I'll say, OK, you couldn't get to your 8K. Here's what I want you to do now. Have, have your couple minutes recovery now, and then you're going to finish off with this. But if they get all the way to the 8K, 8K, and that's fine. Um, so, And the reason why I like watching it is because it's like a bus driving around the loop and we have different people jumping at different times. I might have people starting at four minutes. I might have some people starting at 3.40. So, and I might have people starting at 3.30. So um, depending on what I want their finishing time to be, I generally want the last two to three K done below threshold pace is what I've sort of set up for. But it's a responsibility of the two people who are leading the bus to, to get the, the kilometre pace spot on. So we don't like to see big jumps. We like to see just that gradual build-up. And so... You see people, you know, some people will be almost finished when others are about to start. Um, and you just, you know, at, at any one time you can see it bounce around. And, and it, you know, I, I used to enjoy quite a bit of cycling and we'd sort of see the pace line and have people working together to maintain the pace. And we see that here, you know, the two at the front will sort of peel off to the side and work their way through. Um, and it's, uh, it's quite special to see it as when it's really well coordinated and the athletes really understand the, the process just rolling around and, and to see these guys in some of the last last K they pick up, and, you know, it's pretty cool to sort of see them approach it that way. So that's one I enjoy the most. 
um, you know, we, we do the staples like anyone else. We've got uh, we got the 1K reps, um, you know. Uh, we, we, we do them sometimes the 60-second recovery, some people do the 90-second recovery, some do the 400-meter float or 600-meter float in between. It's all very dependent on, on the individual, but, you know, I really like seeing track sections done, personally. Um, so, you know, uh, to me as a coach, you feel a little bit more involved there, so it's, it's quite, a, quite enjoyable to be a part of that and be able to provide a bit more feedback and, and those sort of things. Um, what are some of those sessions? I don't know. They change all the time, to be honest with you. I, I like a, I like a bit of license to get creative with my sessions. Um, uh, you know, we do quarters. You know, the four uh, hundreds and the two hundred float. We do. You know, we've got a fartlek that I sort of modelled just because we did so many monofartleks over time. Is that the Diddy K? Yeah, Diddy K. Diddy K is my rapper name that my uh, school students came up with, uh, and. Uh, and that's basically a three-minute, two-by-two-minute, four-by-one-minute, um, you know, with a float of what you're about to run. So, you know, the concept between that and the monofartlek is, is negligible. Um, so I, I don't really mind. You know, we, we, do, a, we do a lot of stuff with, uh, with hills, with a, bit of far, uh, with a bit of threshold before or after. Uh, one of the sessions I sort of got from Lopez Lamont uh, that, that, you know, he did with us when he was down here, which we sort of progressed to within our new training model where, you know, you do 5K at, you know, your threshold pace, uh, then you'll do a couple mile reps and then some 400s. So we progressively get quicker throughout our sessions. Um, and that sort of spurred us on to change the training model as well because we were very much in a, you know, the typical Australian model that you see the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, uh, you know, with an easy long run on the Sunday. But now we sort of alternate. So we do that one week, that's our week A, and our week B is Tuesday, Friday, and a hard long run on a Saturday. So uh, Sunday, Sunday, sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, so they're picking up for the last 40 minutes of an hour, 40 to two hour run, and they're, they're getting down to sort of 320 pace, some of them. So um, we're, we're sort of, I, I feel that the, the, the newer coaches like myself, the younger coaches, we've kind of got a responsibility to evolve. It's always been such, an, such a, you know, great model. You know, what, uh, what Pat Clancy, Chris Wardlaw sort of uh, rolled out has, has achieved so much success. And, uh, and it's still the basis of what we do today, but um, but we do need to challenge and evolve things and see if we can uh, find some extra gains through uh, through just, you know, and I think it's probably just manipulating where you load up bigger and where how you recover between bigger sessions that's, that's given us that. So we used to, you know, sort of limit ourselves to probably 8Ks worth of volume in a session. Now we're 13 to 15Ks in some sessions um, for those who have developed to that point. And that's been available to us because we now, you know, when we've got a Tuesday session and then we've got a session on the Friday, we've got now two days in between. Um, so we can utilise a, a bit of a, a longer midweek run on the Wednesday, knowing that we've got the Thursday to recover before the session. Whereas it's hard to achieve when you've got a Tuesday, you know, you're doing like an hour and a half to two hours on a, for some of them on a, on a Wednesday and then you're backing up again through a session on Thursday. Those three days are really... Um, that's quite a high load period and, and you need to be respectful of that. So yeah, it's, it's been nice to be able to play around with that a little bit more um, now to, to be able to achieve that. And, and also when we've got races, like, you know, if we've got a race on a, on a Friday, we might just do a session on the Tuesday and then not do anything until the Friday um, and, and incorporate that and maybe add on a little bit post-race to capitalise on the load we've already achieved with the race. So yeah, we've got, got to be able to play around and, you know, be a bit of a um, 
oh, I guess a bit of a bit creative and a bit scientific with it and just test out a few theories and models and, and work with the athletes to understand how, how they how they accept it. Yeah, no. and um, only a couple more questions because um, thanks for being so you know generous with your time, Adam. Um, what's the group's hardest session um, that you've seen them do? Like, what's the session that they all sort of like um, a bit um, nervous about and um, not really wanting to do? I, I used to say the lactate clearance sessions, which was basically it was eight mile of one k on six hundred off, um, and and but it's you know, we used to, they were done fairly solidly, solidly. Like I'd, I'd see someone like uh, Jess Trangove go through 10K in, you know, 34.10. So, and I've seen Riley Cox go through 10K doing that in, you know, 30.10. So, you know, it's, um, you know, it, it's quite impressive uh, because it's just, you know, there's the float in between just keeps a fairly good average pace. But obviously as you drag it out, it, it gets quite concerning. Yeah, I don't know. I, um, it's a good question, but I don't know that there's one. I think they've all just sort of accepted their, their need to get the training done now. And yep. and I, I don't think we really tolerate people coming out and stressing the group out by being scared of a session. But, you know, certainly uh, I think you can make four 400s a scary session if you ask for, yeah. for the intensity to be high uh, or you or you manipulate the recoveries to be low. And um, so I, I don't know. I think, I think they've... Uh, sort of work their way into it the session that a lot of them really enjoy um but they enjoy because they like apply, applying the intensity is what we do during track season season which is basically you know um might start off at a 1200 or, or a 1k and then it drops by 200 so it might go 1k 800 600 400 200 but every one of those reps is followed 30 seconds later by a hard 200 meters um and like the 1k will start off at like 5k pace and then you'll go 3k pace and then 3k 1500 and 1500 pace so um so they they enjoy that session and they always look forward to it and our steeplechasers will often sort of we'll, we'll pull out the hurdles during that session as well for them to to run over um so you know it, it it's something they really enjoy as a tune up into big races so so they obviously did one of those last week and um and and yeah so showed good signs i don't I don't use things as a model of predicting what the performance is going to be, but if they walk away with it feeling really positive what they've been able to do, how it felt, then that's that's a good enough predictor for me. Nice. Um, and then, uh, like, I remember you in one of the podcasts you mentioned how you were quite burnt out and um, stressed um, around that time of Rio Rio Olympics where Maddie Heiner and Jess did so well, but they went into it, you know, with not the most ideal preparations and... Um, and then um, you sort of were questioning whether um, you you wanted to keep doing the coaching, but you soon once you got back to the group, you you, um, you know you realised why you were, why you were doing it. Um, like how in terms of like your future of coaching and and uh, like do you, do you still love it now as much as you you ever have? And um, where do you see yourself going forward? Yeah, good question. I mean, yeah, that obviously is a time of reflection that uh, that leading into Rio and. A, I learned so much about how to manage myself as a coach, um, and uh, and I and I sort of had to make some pretty tough decisions that if I continued coaching, I needed to make sure that I, I sort of put a few things in place to to support me to to stay healthy throughout it all because it was quite a stressful year, um, and and certainly those pressures are never too far from the truth when it comes to working in the high performance world and 
and you have to accept that that's part of it if you want to if you want to play the game kind of thing. So um, so it is a different environment. Uh, do I love coaching? I, I think I love it more so. I I, I love different parts of it um, and, and that I, that I've explored. I, I thoroughly enjoyed investigating that and and working through that with with coaches from many different sports over the last two years as part of the AIS podium coach program, uh, where I was working with, uh, with, with diving coaches, uh, rowing, uh, you know, mogul skiing, sailing, um, hockey, um, netball, you know, and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, interacting and just recognising what coaching is all about. And, uh, and they helped me to explore that and challenge me in a, in a lot of those ways. I think that's helped me to really come a long way with, with where I see myself as a coach and what I see myself like as a coach. Um, so I, I thoroughly recommend that people go and work with coaches in other sports and don't just feel like you're going to learn something from an athletics coach because you want to know the technical. Learn about being a coach. I think that's so important. So so the, the big part of that um, to me is uh, is I think that we need to recognise that, um, that, yeah, look, I, I, I've got to that point where I really enjoy the coaching, again, um, more so than I've had before. And do I plan to do it for the next 30 years? Probably not. <laughs> I, find, um, I find because of the approach I take, uh, it is quite taxing on me, not just in a time sense, but, you know, emotionally and, and, um, and also recognising the impact it has on my family um, and, and, and looking at how I need to modify things to make sure I support them as well. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's something that I'll just sort of see how it plays out over, over the years. I, I'll probably enjoy working at a high performance level the most. Um, and it's not just because of the kudos of being working with great athletes. I think it just attunes with my, with my attributes as a coach um, and, and, and what motivates me. Um, I, don't, I don't look at the rewards as a solid part of that because I, I think it's just as rewarding to, to coach a recreational runner to it's in their first marathon. So uh, I, value the, I value both the same. I think it just yeah, lends itself to my attributes. Um, but, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. I, I, I feel that I might have more to offer to the sport outside of coaching um, one day, but I'm, I'm not at that point yet. I, I... continue to make some, some gains and, and, and a positive impact, and then hopefully in the future I can, I can take that experience and, um, and, and work, to, work with other coaches or, or, or guide, guide things in another way. So just have to wait and see. Yeah. Great. And um, to finish, um, uh, like you've already had like such an amazing career as a coach um, with so many, uh, I'm sure, proud moments. Um, what rank up there as like some of the most proud moments you've had and fulfilling moments that you've had um, that, you know, fill you up with the most pride when you look back on them and reflect? Um, yeah, look, I think, it's, I think it's your gold medal moments as a coach and not, and not the actual performance. It's the um, it's probably the enjoyment from a from an athlete perspective um, on, uh, on on reflection of their own result, um, and, and I've seen people do what I think are amazing results uh, and not be overly stoked about it, um, and then I've seen uh, people who are just over the moon because they've achieved something they never thought they would. So yeah, I, again, I don't know if it's that fair to sort of ask, but I, I still recall a moment that probably came. A little early and a little bit unexpected was um, was was definitely just uh, uh, achieving her first Olympic selection. Um, 
because we sort of went to Japan with a with a hope and a plan and and didn't know how realistic it was. And when she ran under the qualifying time for the London Olympics, it was a, it's hard to describe that moment. Uh, but likewise, when when Max Stevens ran a Commonwealth Games qualifier here in Adelaide, just on a race we set up one night. Uh, well, actually, no, it wasn't. It was a it was a state championships, um, and uh, and. You know, to to sort of see someone go and run a Commonwealth Games qualifier, like I like I explained earlier, probably wasn't the sort of guy you'd expected from the moment he started to do something like that. It just blew my mind. That moment of when it's still still a bit to me because I don't think there's any greater validation of a relationship with coach and athlete than when they acknowledge you, and and that's such a special thing just for an athlete to say to a coach that we did it. Um, that uh, yeah, it, it's it's hard to replace that. Yeah, no, that that um, and like even what you're saying before, like just about Max and um, and I'm I'm sure Jess because like that was like, you know, her her um, you know, turning to the marathon and and you know it was like no one no one was sure whether she'd be able to do it or not. So like that's so fulfilling to to be from the there from the start and um, see all the hard work that goes into it and then to actually like actually achieve it and, and actually see that you can do it like um yeah i, I think um it, it makes sense that like there there's some really fulfilling moments um yeah and i think i think the hard part is when you first become a coach you're trying to prove to yourself that you can be a coach and you can be a good coach and so you, you get just just caught up in the, the validation you get from the athletes performances and i, I was no different to anyone else but I don't necessarily care anymore um, about some of those things. Obviously, I care about performance. Uh, that's a, that's a, a necessary byproduct of the area that I want to work in. But it's more a case of, hey, I've got a bit more context and perspective on, on what drives towards that. So, you know, um, I think that's probably where I've sort of come to as a coach and, and it's a context of it. So, like I said, if the athlete's happy, I'm happy. I'm stoked. That, that, they're my moments. They're my gold medals. I, I don't need anything else. So, um, yeah, that, I think that's just a, that, that's a good end point on that one, really. Yeah, yeah. Now, thank, thanks so much, Adam. Like, you've been so generous with your time and I've held you up way too long and you've got a busy day ahead. Um, uh, yeah, just want to um, say that I'm so appreciative that you were able to jump on and, and share all your experiences and, and um, your um, philosophies and, and what you've learned um, as a coach and, and also share a lot about the group. Um, so, now thanks so much for your time. No worries, mate. Anytime. Thanks, Adam. See ya. No problems, mate. See ya.